0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, Liz Truss's radical plans to overhaul environmental laws and the unlikely alliance forming against her.
0: A government attack on nature, that's how wildlife charities are reacting this afternoon to policies that could see house builds and commercial development in large swathes of the countryside.
1: If all your focus has been on the way Liz Truss is handling the British economy, which would be understandable, you might have missed another radical policy shift her government is cooking up. But others have been paying attention.
0: We want to make sure the rules that we have to protect nature stay there. I don't know about you, but it feels like the environment is becoming, I suppose, a flashpoint for Liz Truss at the moment.
2: Uh, Yesterday in the Sunday Times, the National Trust chief, that's Hilary McGrady, accused Liz Truss of demonising conservationists, said her members were outraged and worried about the threat posed by the new government's policies.
1: There's a sleeping giant in British politics. They're the bird watchers, the apple pickers, the ramblers, the ones who lunch at heritage-listed estates. They're not usually political, but now they're coming together and they're pissed off.
0: So what's unusual about what's unfolding with environmental groups is that they are combined and united in their outcry of anger against government's
1: policies. This government, this Tory government, has launched an attack on nature.
0: It's very angry. There is no beating about the bush at all. It's, it's direct anger, accusations of an attack on nature and a sort of directness that we haven't really seen from these kind of organisations, particularly, for example, the National Trust, who've always trod very carefully on any policy issues with a government, in a sitting government, and, and they have joined the anger and the direct approach to accusing the government of carrying out what will destroy our country's environment and wildlife.
1: Opposition is building and Labor is circling, determined to make this the next big Truss government U-turn. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, can Liz Truss win her battle with the English countryside? Sandra Laville, you're an environment correspondent and you've been following the growing anger from these nature-focused groups over the past few weeks. Can you start by taking me step by step through what exactly has enraged them so much? What is the government doing that's prompted this response?
0: The first trigger for their anger came a few weeks ago when a bizarre bill was laid in Parliament on the day of the fracking debate. It didn't get much attention. The media were focused on the lifting of the fracking ban.
2: Mr Speaker, despite what he said, is it not the case that forecasting the occurrence of seismic events as a result of fracking remains a challenge to the experts? Is it not therefore creating a risk of an unknown quantity to pursue shale gas exploration at the present time? Yes. Is he aware the safety of the public is not a currency in which some of us choose to speculate? Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: What had been laid in Parliament was a bill to rip up the 570 key environment laws, which are the bedrock of protections in this country. They're all EU-derived, and they cover water pollution, air pollution, sewage pollution. And this bill identifies that they will all be sunsetted. They will run out by December 2023. This is what prompted the RSPB's first very angry social media response, and it clearly stated... We are angry now. This is an attack on nature.
1: On the face of it, it does sound pretty staggering that 570 environmental laws deriving from EU directives are going to just cease to be laws. They're going to expire. Do we have any sense of what these laws relate to and what's going to happen if some of them, perhaps most of them, aren't rewritten by the time the existing laws are sunsetted?
0: We do have a sense of what will happen. So if you look at one of the laws, the Water Framework Directive, which directly relates to quality of rivers, water quality, and currently in England and Wales, no river passes the biological or chemical tests as good. They've all failed under the Water Framework Directive. The... Head of the Environment Agency indicated in a speech last year that he wanted to amend the Water Framework Directive to essentially make it easier for rivers to pass. (laughs) So, if you can't pass the test, change the test, kind of thing. So, there's already an indication that the Water Framework Directive will either be totally sunsetted or changed to such a degree that it becomes meaningless. These 570 EU laws dragged Britain up from being the dirty man of Europe over the last 10 to 15 years. And if they are sunsetted, we could well be back where we started. I'd unleash the full potential of Brexit, getting all of the EU laws off our statute books by the end of 2023.
1: And why exactly was the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB, so concerned about this proposal by the government? What do they fear will happen if these laws are sunsetted?
0: Well, there's a particular law called the Habitat Regulation, which the RSPB are very upset about because the Habitat Regulation identifies areas across the country and indeed across Europe to provide habitats for migrating birds. There are very strict controls of what can and cannot happen in these zones. The Habitat Regulations are one of the key areas that the government wants to get rid of. They think it's burdensome and it's been clear for a long time that the Conservative government does not see the habitat regulations in the same light as the RSPV do, which is as essential protections for wildlife and nature.
1: OK, Sandra, you said that at the time it wasn't widely noticed that the government was going to push through this kind of bill because people were debating another environmental proposal by the government which related to fracking. Tell me about what the government proposes to do there.
0: So this is another sort of needle towards the environmental groups because the government has, as advertised by Liz Truss, in her leadership campaign, they have lifted the ban on fracking, which was imposed in 2019 after a series of earthquakes. I support fracking in areas where there is local support. And what I want to make sure is a local community's benefit. I think that's very important. Some of the current licences already exist in very protected areas. So they're alongside national parks, they're in sites of special scientific interests. And these licences, 150 of them, are now live again. So this is another assault on nature as the environmental groups see it.
1: And who is pushing for that? Like who is out there demanding more fracking in the English countryside?
0: The government's advisors have very much been pushing for more fossil fuel extraction because they see it as essential for British growth. But I I don't think you'll find many people in the English countryside arguing for fracking. You know, even the former head of Quadrilla has said, it. it you know, the England is not the place to frack, that the, the quality of the shale gas isn't good enough. There isn't enough of it. And there's also the side of it that is about the creation of earthquakes, the air pollution, destruction of habitats and environment. The issue really is of how this will go ahead, because the government has said they will only do this where the community agrees. But what's becoming very clear is that the government wants to make fracking a national infrastructure project, which means it removes it from local democratic decision making.
1: And why do they want to do that? What do they see as the important value of fracking?
0: (laughs) It's hard to say. I mean, Liz Truss says we'll be fracking gas in six months. Not true. Won't happen. The argument, I suppose, that they are giving is that we want to be energy secure. They talk about Putin, they talk about Ukraine, and they hope that fracking will be another way that this country can be secure and produce its own energy. The facts don't suggest that the scale of fracking we will be able to do here or the amount of shale gas will even help us do that.
1: Sandra, what you're sketching here sounds like a full-scale assault on the environment, but there's more to it. One of the things the Trust government is planning to establish is these low-tax investment zones across the country where we're told there's going to be tax breaks and even fewer laws and regulations for people who want to build houses or set up businesses. Inside those zones, do we have any idea of what kind of environmental regulations, if any, are going to exist?
0: It's not clear at all. They said in their guidance that the regulations for Greenbelt would continue to exist. Well, they indicated that, but they didn't mention environmental impact assessments being kept in place. They didn't mention the habitat regulations. They didn't mention nutrient neutrality, which is another regulation under the habitat regulations, which protects water quality. It stops pollution. In fact, their briefings to friendly newspapers very much indicate that the nutrient neutrality rules and the habitat regulations will not apply in investment zones.
1: Okay, Sandra, dare I ask, is there any more that the Trust government has in store for the environment?
0: Yes, there was more to come. So the Environmental Land Management Scheme, which is the rules post-Brexit that were introduced to pay farmers for environmental good. So the more environmentally friendly Projects they have on their farm, the more public money they will get. Within 48 hours, the same week that the fracking moratorium was lifted, it was very clear that these regulations were being reviewed and we don't know yet what will come out of this review. But in terms of protecting nature and enhancing nature, these ELMS policies were going to be very, very significant. The current government are obsessed, well, they seem to be obsessed on growth at any cost, and I've got two kids and I worry about their future in this world, but I also worry about the generations to come after them. And that was a chance for us farmers to really harness the powers of nature
1: within our system. And Sandra, what happens if Liz Truss is able to push through every one of those policies you've just laid out for us? What would Britain look like if she wins this battle that she's fighting with with nature, with the countryside?
0: Well, as Becky Spite, the chief executive of the RSPB, said, it would be devastation because we're already in a critical situation in terms of species decline. 41% of species in the UK are in decline. 15% of our species face extinction. We've already seen a decline in insect life, a decline in bird life. I think you will just get a much more sterile, natural environment. We all know that there's very good research about how being in nature helps well-being. And after two years of a pandemic, arguably this is a very important issue for the population's well-being and health.
1: Julian Glover, you're a former Downing Street speechwriter who worked under David Cameron and you recently completed a review for the government on national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. I want to ask you about the politics of the environment in the UK and particularly within the Tory party. How central was it to David Cameron's project of rebuilding the Tories in the 2000s and how deeply does this issue resonate with members of the Conservative Party?
2: It resonates a lot and it has been and I hope will be very central Remember the word conservation conservative. There is a connection between the right of centre right of British politics and a sense of caring for the environment, protecting the past and making it stronger for the future. That's in, let's put it politely, some trouble right at the moment with the government and the Prime Minister we seem to have. But it doesn't mean there hasn't been good progress and we can't get progress in the future. David Cameron talked a lot about the environment, but but actually some of the progress that, that happened was in the period after him as well. We saw the Environment Act, which was passed last year, uh, which commits Britain to very radical environmental goals, not just on carbon, but also on net improvement in biodiversity. We saw too, after Brexit, largely a disastrous moment for Britain, but in one area it had potential, and that was the environment and farming, because Britain was able to move from the European Common Agricultural Policy, which was quite a constraining, very pro-farmer policy, to developing a very liberal and radical policy of environmental land management, better natural environment, better soil, better water, more natural beauty, good for wild species too. So huge, huge progress was being made. Not perfect, of course, but big progress. The question now is what is going to happen? Is that going to continue? Is it going to go backwards? And many people are deeply worried.
1: Julian, I want to quote from that landscape review that you've mentioned, from the preface, where you say that in the 70 years since the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act, our country has changed immensely. But one thing that's remained the same is the affection of a large and varied part of our fellow citizens for the place this review covers. They really are England's soul, and we should care for them as such. When you look at what Liz Truss's new government is trying to do, do you think she shares that sentiment?
2: No, I don't think she thinks like that. And I don't think she pretends to. She was a minister at DEFRA, the Environment Department, for a while, perhaps not one of the glorious moments of her career. Um, We may look quite hard to find where the glorious moments were, but she'll see the environment and nature more as a resource. That's not in itself a bad thing. Nature and the environment sits alongside people. And I believe very strongly that a better, more biodiverse environment is also one that will support better human life, The two aren't at war with each other, but the risk is that if you just see that as a place to exploit quickly, to build things, to get growth, then you will end up with huge backward steps, big damage. I wonder how much ministers have thought this through, whether they're just throwing out ideas at the moment. They say, trust us, you don't understand. You're confused as to what we're doing. We promise to give these protections. So the message now is, okay, we'll take you on that word tell us in Parliament, make it very clear, those protections will be respected, they will be strengthened. And if that happens, I think some of the concern will fall away, but it hasn't happened yet.
1: Julian, given that this is a break from the way that previous Tory governments have looked at the environment, what do you think it tells us about the kind of government that Liz Truss is running, that it rushes out a policy or a suite of policies like this that are just bad for the environment, they're, they're unrepresentative, they're unpopular. Like, What does it tell us about the functioning of her office and the government that she's trying to lead?
2: You, you, you've been very generous there because you've used the word Liz trust and running. Um, I'm not even sure that we really have any coherence at that level. So it's perhaps a bit soon to know exactly. There is a profound dislike of rules, of, of a system that tells you what you can and cannot do. Liz Truss is a libertarian. She doesn't really believe in a fully rule-based society. She wants to give people freedom to make their own choices. So I don't think it's simply an anti-environment thing. It's an anti-rules thing. An environment is caught in the crossfire.
1: I just want to push on, on one aspect of this, which is that one of the policies that we read Liz Truss has been pushing is a ban on farmers using their land to have solar farms, for example. But Even that doesn't strike me as particularly libertarian because she's getting in the way of people using land that they own in the way they want to. And I wonder if it speaks to a broader dislike of the environment or of anything that she might perceive as being environmental or renewable or helpful to to nature.
2: It's quite bizarre, isn't it, that policy? On the one hand, we're told people can do what they like. On the other hand, they're being told they can't. It makes no intellectual sense, of course. I suspect it's less an anti-Green thing and more that she's an MP in a very flat part of Eastern England and the places people are trying to put solar farms are in flat parts of Eastern England. And in the Tory leadership campaign, she said there would be a block on solar development because it's very, very popular with a lot of Tory members. The thing I'm most worried about is the thing called investment zones. I'm not against making it quicker and easier to get development in places that need it. But the idea they might cover areas of outstanding natural beauty, that's places like Cotswolds or Cornwall or Dorset, massively visited, very popular, not places you want to remove planning controls to encourage quick build housing and industrial warehousing. Under the government until now, We've had a policy called net gain. That means if you build a thing, you need to leave the environment in a better condition. So if you happen to build it in a field and you damage that piece of environment, you need to make sure that you fund improvements elsewhere. So overall, biodiversity is left in a better state. It's a really good idea. We don't know if that's going to continue. It's bizarre because the public don't support it. I think the government's doing it out of a desperate desire for growth and a lack of originality or understanding as to how to get that right.
1: And how does this narrowly ideological view of the environment and nature as a resource, as just a source of growth, look from rural communities around the country that are traditionally conservative in their voting?
2: Well, people aren't against change, and I'm not against change. So I think in rural communities, there's a lot of concern about being cut out of some of modern progress. Things like getting good internet, getting decent transport do matter to people. And certainly polling in the last few weeks seems to suggest that rural Britain, just as much as anywhere else, has turned against the government. People, of course, worry about the cost of mortgages and other things. There isn't always a distinct rural agenda. But the feeling that the government has forgotten rural England and is not offering policies which it promised to offer up to this year is definitely there. There's a lot of concern.
1: Some of the people watching those polls really closely will be other Tory MPs. Are they applying serious pressure behind the scenes on the government to change tack on this?
2: It's all early days. This is all very new. There's all sorts of things people are applying pressure to the government on. The environment is only one of them. But definitely, when and if things come to parliament that involve lifting protections, involve getting rid of rules that do good there will be much, much disquiet about it. It's interesting, we have heard a bit from Conservatives. We heard, for instance, from William Hague, the former leader of the Conservative Party. He wrote a powerful article warning the government against lifting protections on nature, saying they will regret doing this. Voices like his are being heard. The former minister who's been most vocal in uh, her opposition is Rebecca Powell, who was a minister at DEFRA uh, until uh, a few weeks ago. One that I've noticed we haven't heard is the Labour Party. The Labour Party at its conference used the word green in its messaging. It said it was a green party, which is great to hear. But actually, I haven't really heard Labour take part in this story at all. We do need to hear from Labour, because if we're going to have a proper battle inside Parliament in which we stand up for things that we need to stand up for, both sides have to do it.
1: Coming up, what can environmental groups do to force Liz Truss to rethink her attitude to nature?
0: I'm Grace Dent and I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Don O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> the, the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes
1: released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado. Sandra, we've got this unprecedented coalition of unlikely groups, these so-called Middle England groups, that have come together to oppose these measures. And you've also got the Director-General of the National Trust accusing the government of demonising conservationists. How are these groups and organisations mobilising? What's their plan? What are they going to do to make the government change tack?
0: Firstly, to say they didn't plan to form a coalition. It was very much a spontaneous reaction two weeks ago, they all responded and then they all looked around and saw that the others were responded and then they started talking to each other.
2: We and other organisations are thinking really hard about what the next steps in this fight will be and we will let you know what they are at the right time.
0: Initially they are trying to mobilise their millions of members. And the figures range between 8 to 15 million people who are linked or members of these groups. It's a significant proportion of the population from all political walks of life. They've often been called the sort of sleeping lions of the environmental movement because they have so many members and could have such a force behind them if they did rise up, if you like. And they are rising up. And it's an unusual situation for them. They're not Extinction Rebellion. They're not Greenpeace. You know, they don't mount oil tankers and platforms. That's not the way they operate. So it is a learning curve. But I think the very fact that they're even discussing it and they're out there pushing it is, is a significant step.
1: How radicalised do you think they're going to get? Are we likely to see birdwatchers and ramblers gluing themselves to roads or letting down the tyres of SUVs anytime soon?
0: I actually don't think they'll be doing that anytime soon. I think there are other groups who do that and they have their place.
2: I'm not sure the RSPB would do direct action.
0: That's not something us NGOs do. But we are calling on all our members to write to their MPs, write to their local councillors and say, we're not anti-growth. The Wildlife Trust are not anti-growth. But growth should happen without damaging the environment. I think what you'll probably see is something more like a mass march. They will try and get significant numbers of people to march, I would say. And Chris Packham, who's on the fringes of this, is already trying to organise such a mobilisation of the millions, as you call it, to have a very visual demonstration of anger. And the government is rattled. I mean, you can see from their responses that they are rattled by this.
2: Just over a week ago, I postulated that it might be time to take to the streets again in a peaceful walk across our capital to show the government that we have grave concerns about some of the things that they may be rolling out that we think could be seriously detrimental to our environment and wildlife.
1: Do you think they expected it, that they expected there would be such a groundswell of opposition? No,
0: absolutely not. I think it shocked them. I mean, within 48 hours, you had the Secretary of State for the Environment recording a statement on social media, trying to appease the anger, promises that nothing's going to happen, we're not going to harm nature. So they do seem to be rattled, yes.
2: There have been claims about our farming and environmental policies in the last few days that are simply untrue. I want to set the record straight. Outside of the EU, we are free from the common agricultural policy. We're introducing new schemes that will support our farmers to produce high quality food and support them in enhancing our natural environment. We are committed to those schemes and to helping our farmers curate our countryside as they have for generations. Of course, Last year, we passed our world-leading Environment Act. We are committed to halting the decline of nature by 2030 and will not undermine our obligations to the environment in pursuit of growth.
1: And as we do know, the government has a decent majority, on paper at least. What do they need to actually do to make these proposals a reality? Do they have the votes in Parliament?
0: It's not clear whether the investment zones will be voted upon in Parliament, it's unlikely that the repeal of the 570 laws will actually go to a vote. It'll be done through secondary legislation on the sort of minister's tap of a pen, if you like. So it's not clear whether there is going to be a democratic judgment on this.
1: And what about within the Tory party? I mean, how do people feel about such a shift from the way earlier Tory governments had been approaching the environment?
0: Let's not forget that lots of these MPs are in fairly marginal constituencies. And some of these constituencies are in areas where fracking might take place. So these people want to save their jobs and keep their seats. So they are very concerned. And I think this is what could be the great power of the movement and the coalition, because they have allies within the Conservative Party.
1: Julian, we've been talking about this government's obsession with growth and the fact that they seem to see the environment as a source of growth. But I'm wondering if it actually works that way. Like, do you need to sacrifice the environment in order to spur economic growth? Or is there some way of getting the economic benefits that Liz Truss wants, but in a way that green groups and people who love the countryside can actually get behind?
2: Yeah, I I think we can have both. I, I think we can have a stronger, better economy and a better natural environment. I don't think it's a choice. There are some in the environmental movement who feel very strongly that the environment really can't sit alongside a more prosperous country, and you have to choose the environment, and and I can understand that point of view, but I don't share it. I'm very much of the opinion we can have both, and that means setting very clear rules about development, about how you manage landscape. If we could do that, it doesn't stop economic activity, it doesn't stop housing, it doesn't stop progress. It just means we use our skills to make things better. We don't damage things. Often, of course, there's benefits from looking after the environment. If we clean our water supplies and stop flooding, we don't need to spend as much money on flood management. If we stop polluting rivers, we don't need to spend as much money on cleaning up drinking water before it goes to consumers. So you can have both. And that's the beauty of some of the policies we've got in place in Britain. And that's one of the reasons I'm so unhappy that we might suddenly be shifting away to a much more short-term, much cruder view of growth, which is simply
1: if you build something, that counts as GDP. We have the right policies, we just need to do them. Sandra, do you think that's possible, to balance the kind of growth that trust wants while also nurturing the environment that we all rely upon to survive?
0: I think the way of doing that is to not use GDP as a measure of growth. If you just look at growth in terms of GDP, you're not looking at sustainable, strong, long-term growth. You're looking at sort of boom and then disaster for the environment. Growth should also include holistic well-being, the health of the nation. They can be combined if you don't just see growth in terms of economic productivity.
1: Do you think that if the government did want to focus purely on GDP, on economic growth as we traditionally understand it, Is there an ecologically friendly way to even do that?
0: If you keep all the current environmental regulations, if you keep the habitat regulations, if you keep planning law, potentially there is. All these things slow up the process, but they're there for a reason. They're not there just to be burdensome. They're there to protect our natural world.
1: And you've talked about the fact that these groups are organising a march but is there a long-term strategy for resistance taking shape? Like, can they sustain the anger that so many people feel right now?
0: Sustaining the anger, sustaining the momentum, keeping what they're doing in the public eye, that will always be difficult. And I, you know, I'm not sure of their next plans, to be honest, but um, once the sleeping lion has arisen and woken, it's hard to see that it's going to lie down again.
1: That was Sandra LaVille, an environment correspondent with The Guardian. Thank you so much to her and also to Julian Glover, former speechwriter for David Cameron. Before we go, Comfort Eating with Grace Dent has returned for its fourth season with lots of great guests including Mallory Blackman, Dorno Porter and Graham Norton. Just search for Comfort Eating wherever you listen to this podcast and hit subscribe. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Cardamales and Ivor Manley. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is the Guardian.